0: Van Houten, and each week I'm here with Brian Buck, lead pastor at Oaks Parish, to go a little deeper into Sunday sermon and to keep the conversation going throughout the week as we journey together in learning what it means to abide in Christ for the renewal of all things. So let's dive in. Welcome back to the Oaks Parish podcast. Brian and I are here again for the fifth episode, and it's the week of Thanksgiving. It's a shorter work or school week for many of us, which can be fun. And I just can't believe that we're already at this point in the year that we're in the final, what, five or six weeks of the calendar year. That's just wild. It's gone really quickly, and I'm excited that Thanksgiving is this week. And I always love to hear about what other people like to do on Thanksgiving Day. So Brian, what's your favorite part of the day? Does the Buck family have a special tradition each year, or is there one part of the day in particular that you look forward to?
1: So growing up, we were a big sports family. So there was sports on all the time. Uh, Still today, I will call my great grandmother who's 95. She lives in assisted living. I'll call her in the spring, for example, ask what she's doing. And she's watching women's fast pitch softball on ESPN two. So good for her there there was always sports going on at our house so it is of great comfort to me on thanksgiving day at 9 a.m starting at 9 a.m to turn on nfl games and have that just running in the background of the day the whole day uh incredibly relaxing uh totally connects to my story And it always bothers me whenever we've gone over to someone else's house and they don't have on NFL games. I can't abide that. Do you say anything? I don't, but it's a tough pill to swallow.
0: (laughs) It's tough. So you're usually hoping to host or to stay home. Probably. Yes. Yeah. If you can, at all help it. (laughs) That's right. That's great. How about you? That's great. I mean, I love all the typical parts, right? Like the food, the family and friends, the thankfulness. Let's not forget that part. Uh, But one of my favorite parts of the day is also something I like to watch every year. It's not the it's not football. I can tell you that. And it's also not the Macy's Thanksgiving Day parade. This is going to sound very strange, but I fully own it. My favorite thing to watch on Thanksgiving Day is the National Dog Show.
1: Yes, we saw an advertisement for that just the other day and Amanda, I guess because we have a puppy, she wants to watch that this year.
0: She's ready for it. It has a whole new meaning, I'm sure. Yeah, we talked about family dogs last week a little bit and that was really just the small the smallest window into my love for dogs, but I just love watching those nicely groomed dogs just prancing around, the pride and joy in their precious faces. It's just a delight to me. You can just tell they're having a good time out there they're in it to win it and some of them are just really stars <laughs> so.
1: yeah it's always amazing to see the the diversity of dog breeds that yeah are a part of that that show
0: there are there are a lot more than you imagine i'm sure so i'm gonna try to get leo interested in it as well he seems to like dogs too but we'll see um so anyway it's kind of strange Fish.
1: Maybe you could just run a little experiment with Leo having watched the dog show and then NFL games and see what wins out.
0: (laughs) Maybe. I don't know if I want to know the answer though. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I'd probably prefer to just control that. Yes. If I can. No, I'm sure we'll have some football on. The great thing about the dog show actually is that if you miss it live earlier in the day, they're pretty much always replaying it in the evening. So when you're done with everything else, you could still lay back on the couch and watch those dogs
1: fall asleep (laughs) to the dogs trotting out.
0: Exactly. Well, there isn't really any good way to transition out of that, but, um, I'm ready to talk about first Samuel chapter six, if you are. So a week ago, we read about Israel's battle against the Philistines, the battle in which they hauled out the Ark of the Covenant as this good luck charm, so to speak, and then lost not only the battle, but the Ark as well. So this week, the Philistines are in possession of the Ark, and some strange things start happening. The false gods, the idols are toppling over in the presence of the ark. Tumors are spreading among the people. And so they pass it on to another people group. The same thing happens. They pass it on again. The same thing happens. And eventually they're like, we've got to send this thing back, right? The Philistines imagine they were just adding another deity, another God to their collection, but found out that they got a lot more than they bargained for. The God of Israel was not like their many deities. And you mentioned last week that we saw in that chapter what happens when the church tries to weaponize God. And this week, the text is about what happens when culture takes God captive. So I thought we could start by exploring that question. Let's start here. What does it mean for the culture to take God captive? And maybe what are some examples of that happening?
1: Well, first, I think it's fundamental to understand the relationship between faith and culture. Tim Keller says, that the gospel is never fully aligned with any culture, no matter where you're at in the world. But the gospel always critiques and affirms different aspects of every culture. So this is important to keep in mind because we can easily be misled by the status of Christian faith in a given culture. I think when we live in a culture where Christianity is kind of the dominant worldview, there can be a sense of, a false confidence. And when Christianity is the minority worldview, there can be a false sense of discouragement about that. Last week, we saw what happens when the church attempts to capture God and use him for its own purposes, as you just mentioned. This often happens when Christianity is the dominant worldview in a society. When a society is predominantly Christian, it usually results in Christianity shaping culture in profound ways. I think it was Rodney Stark who said that without Christianity, for example, Western civilization would have no concept of human rights, justice, value for women's role, or cure the orphan, the widow, the marginalized, the refugee. Those are all biblical values that became integrated into a larger civilization, and that's a good thing. The danger, though, is that Christian faith can become entangled in power, and we've seen this throughout church history. When one views power as the partner to faith, oftentimes fruitfulness is measured in terms of power. Abuse and corruption are covered up because they are threats to that power. Uh, In the end game, in one's mind can become power itself and keeping or maintaining that power rather than... The kingdom of God. I think we're seeing this in part in our culture right now with the rise of Christian nationalism, for example. This week, we saw what happens when culture attempts to capture God and use him for their own purposes. And this often happens when Christianity is the minority worldview in a given society. In America, separation of church and state has sometimes been used to. Kind of quote unquote, put God in his place. That's what the Philistines did. Um, and we act as though often in our own culture, we act as if we're purely objective without anything influencing our worldview. In that sense, pluralism can sometimes be a pantheon of gods in reality. But as we saw in 1 Samuel 5 and 6, God will not be domesticated. We can't put him in our box. So here in Portland, I think this is important because Christianity is a minority worldview, and it's significant to recognize that fact. Because, as I've noted, different cultural context requires different mindsets. One could say that as a Christian living in Portland, we are followers of Jesus in exile, and therefore, different exilic seasons within the church can be informative for our life here in the city, such as the life, uh, for example, of Old Testament figures. Uh, Esther and Daniel. Uh, Celtic Christianity, which spread throughout the British Isles in the 5th and 7th century, would be an example. The monasteries of the Middle Ages are a vibrant example of faith and exile. In our modern era, uh, one could look to the role that the church played uh, amongst African-American believers during the civil rights era. So um, those were not alone Um, here in our city, being in the minority, there's lots of vibrant examples of the people of God living out faith in exile.
0: Yeah, those are great. When you look at those examples, how would you describe the the marks of a church that flourishes in exile? What does that look like?
1: Now, there's four marks that came to mind for me, and by no means are these marks exhaustive, But the first that came to mind was transcendence. I think we're really seeing that right now um, amidst our culture that has experienced so much tumult uh, in the past years, a real longing for God, a longing for uh, someone who's above and beyond me and the mundane affairs of life. So in a world of chaos and transition, sometimes oppression Uh, It's important to know a God who is above and beyond it all, who can enter into uh, the practical realities of life with his power, with his justice, with his healing. Um, Knowing in the words of Samuel that God is great and there is no one like him and no one beside him is critical when you're living as an exile. A second mark would be what I would describe as an alternate polis. Uh, polis being the Greek word for city, and by this I mean a city of God within the city of man. The community of faith existed uh, in some of these examples within its own boundaries through word and sacrament, enabling adherents to live a very different sort of life, an alternate society within society. The third mark would be extended family, which is one of our core values here at Oaks Parish. People in these communities, they needed one another. They were endeavoring to live a different sort of life. We see this in the monastic communities, Um, the, the Celtic communities in the fifth and seventh century in the British Isles, they were noted for their welcoming spirit, uh, their spirit of hospitality, of wel- welcoming people into a different sort of civilization. Um, One could also say or or describe the church during the civil rights era, particularly for African-American Christians, as a safe confine. You know, it was was a place of safety where they could belong, uh, where they could let down their guard, uh, where they could mobilize for action. The fourth mark would be the welfare of society. Uh, Some of us know this verse well from Jeremiah 29, 7. As God was speaking through Jeremiah to his people who were living in exile, God says, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Someone called this the common good. Monasteries of the Middle Ages preserved and advanced knowledge. They supported the arts. They provided health care and social welfare services. They improved agricultural practice. So I think these four marks, they come to mind uh, for what does it look like for our life in Christ to flourish while in exile, uh, transcendence, uh, an alternate polis, extended family, and pursuing the welfare of society.
0: Yeah, as you were listing off those marks or characteristics, it just kind of struck me how well they do correspond with our core values. Here at Oaks Parish, I think, you know, we find our our longing for God met in the gospel of grace. We hold a commitment to extended family we hold a commitment to being a different kind of society within a society within a society to being a faithful presence in our context and so that's really encouraging to me particularly as we sometimes do feel like we're living kind of an exilic existence here in Portland too or in a culture in general that's not hospitable to the gospel message or to the kingdom of god or sometimes even in a subculture that's taking the gospel message captive for its own purposes we have an anchoring in the gospel message, and as we're seeing through those examples in a historic tradition to show us how to live faithfully. And so I love how these core values are just providing us with some boundaries or signposts for flourishing in our own context. The second point you made yesterday was about God's sacrifice. And you made the comment that when making amends with false gods, we're the ones who pay the price for atonement. But when reconciling with God, it's God himself who pays the price. In the case of Israel, the ark is returned and they find that God has provided everything they need for the atonement of their sins against God. All the the provisions are in place, are provided for them. And how much more does God do this for us in his son, Jesus? But that message seems very countercultural. I think in our American culture, we're pushed to strive, to prove ourselves, to do more and more, to earn or achieve value and acceptance uh, from these false gods um, like power and politics and prestige. But because reconciliation with God doesn't require any of that, I wonder if it's difficult for some of us to grasp in order to successfully function in our culture. We kind of have to sell out to these false gods in a way, but then in opposition to that, we want to accept the extreme and the radical grace of God. So that's a bit hard to reconcile, but I suppose it's an opportunity for us also to practice what it looks like to flourish in exile?
1: Yeah. African Christians today, I think, look at America and uh, I've read in at least one source, uh, they kind of wonder how faith can flourish here in America. Uh, It's almost as if Christians on the continent of Africa are looking at us here in America with pity (laughs) that, uh, that we have so much comfort, that we have so much power, that we have so much control, that we have so much affluence, um, that it makes it actually hard uh, to embrace and to understand the gospel, and for the gospel to have power in our life. And so, I think in once uh, in one sense, it's incredibly difficult for Americans to embrace the gospel because we have a pantheon uh full of other false gods that support us and support us well actually and so it is a it is a definitive choice to turn your back on those gods and to fully dedicate yourself to discipleship with Jesus on the other side of the coin it makes such perfect sense <laughs> <laughs> where as, as i noted yesterday in the sermon you know we can all look at different idols different gods that we serve in our life and as i noted yesterday they consistently over promise under deliver and make us miserable along the way so in, in in another sense it's so perfectly rational to repent to turn away from the worship of these other gods and to turn to Christ alone.
0: Yeah. And you gave a really powerful example of that. That was both humble and transparent. I think about your own experience in your ordination process and how that crushed some of the false gods in your own life and led you to just experiencing greater freedom in Christ and this liberation. And I think that story gave us all the encouragement to ask God kind of illuminate our own hearts to maybe ask how we've seen him at work already, or maybe where we need him to do that work now or into the future for myself to share rather personally, I can say that for the greater part of a year, God has been doing this type of work. I've been for a long time, an anxious person, but prided myself on capably managing it, hiding it, functioning through it. And then sometime last spring, it was like the floodgates of anxiety just opened. I was drenched mm. with it. It felt totally out of my control to cope with it. Felt like it came out of nowhere and it was just impossible to manage. It was affecting me every single day and in almost every way. And there were very, very few things in life not touched by anxiety. So I rather immediately you know, dove in to find all the help I could counseling and that kind of thing to try to get to the bottom of it. Like, where did this come from? Yes, I'm a more anxious personality, but what happened for it to just flood every aspect of life like this? And it's not like I found a really easy answer, but I did begin to uncover some things. And in light of the sermon yesterday and our conversation this week, I think I can very much call those things false gods, Mm. things like perfectionism, reputation, comfort from other people and things that I could attach myself to. Um, or find stability from. Basically, it's like I'd built a nice little kingdom for myself Mm -hmm. and counted on my image, my performance, my creature comforts to kind of keep me stable. And it was like, I was keeping God just outside the walls of that kingdom. And then with the presence of this debilitating anxiety and often panic too, I find myself kind of begging God for his presence and his power to take away the anxiety, Mm -hmm. the panic and the fear. And it strikes me that for a long time, I was still clinging to those false gods and asking God to just come alongside them Hmm. and also be powerful. Hmm. But God's about the work of crushing those things, not not in condemnation, as you said, but for liberation, Hmm. to liberate me from a false sense of security in my reputation, my image, my creature comforts, and to, to place me with ultimate security in his loving embrace, to liberate me from the need to find significance and other things and to allow myself to be fully seen by God and so on. And I just want to say it can be agonizing, right? Both Mm. you shared that yesterday in your story too, both to be confronted with the idols that you've raised in the face of the one true God, and also to be extracted from those things and the pain that they're causing you. But I'm also really struck by the realization that it's the false idols that are being crushed that it's God's grace that I'm not crushed in the process.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: It's painful and long and arduous, but at the end of it, which I'm certainly not there yet, but, but there's freedom and I'm being liberated, not crushed. That's like, wow, God mm-hmm. is very much making me more whole. And even in the early stages of this journey, living with less anxiety, it's like freedom, that freedom feels like air and wholeness. And like I found solid ground again.
1: Martha, first of all, thanks for your vulnerability in sharing that. Um, I also appreciate how that you really pointed to the relationship between the emotional and the spiritual, mm. that these are not distinct categories uh, in our Western mind, but these things are very much uh, joined together and affect one another. And in the same thing, have the, in, in a way, are the same thing, uh, that they have this symbiotic Relationship and um, and I appreciate that that gospel reality that God is seeking to crush this false idol, not crush us. Uh, that's that's a wonderful picture.
0: Well, when these false idols in our lives are crushed, when we realize the sacrifice God has made to atone for us, it's like we can hardly imagine how to relate to Him in the in the face of that. We have to take care not to diminish God, not to bring Him down to our level and instead learn to relate to him rightly and heal our relationship with him. And your last point was that we experience this healing in our relationship with God by beholding him. What are some ways that we practice
1: beholding God? I think there's probably a lot of answers uh, to that question. You know, Richard Rohr, I I don't agree with him uh, on everything theological, but uh, one of the things that I do appreciate Uh, that he says, is that we live in a Christ-soaked universe. Mm -hmm. And that is an amazing mystery, that at every turn and corner, Christ is present to us and with us. I think sometimes in uh, evangelicalism, we've kind of limited the presence of Christ to Bible study, for example, And sometimes we start heading down that road and uh, relationship with God simply becomes a cognitive exercise. Uh, That's why personally, I just enjoy uh, using the daily lectionary in the book of common prayer. I'm not just studying the Bible as a text or as a sacred text, but I'm reading it meditatively. I'm interacting with God. I'm journaling about it, I'm thinking about, I'm chewing on it, I'm meditating on his word and his truth in his presence. You know, this morning, um, I took our puppy Pepper for a walk to try to get out some of that morning energy. And a couple of blocks from our house, we have this really wonderful view of the city and the hills that are set behind the city. And obviously, they're filled with all sorts of incredible colors in the fall foliage. So I turn this corner and I and I catch this glimpse and I just stand there for a second and and just beholding this beauty. And in beholding the beauty of that, I also sense that I was beholding the beauty of God. Mm -hmm. That the psalmist speak of nature in this way, that that nature is kind of a mirror to the beauty and the worth and the majesty and the glory of God Himself. So um I think that, that uh, this happens, this unfolds for us in a lot of different ways. Uh, certainly the liturgy on Sunday morning, as we've been talking about in past weeks, is, is central to that. Uh, I almost think that when we gather for worship, it's kind of the, the liturgy is kind of training us to behold Christ in the larger scheme of life.
0: Wow, that's really powerful and beautiful. And I think what stands out to me is that it's a lot simpler to, to behold God than we realize. His beauty, majesty, glory are all around us. I love that phrase. You used a Christ-soaked universe. It's perhaps the distraction of a million other things, or it's our untrained eyes and heart that are missing his beauty and majesty and glory all around us, but his world is just saturated with it. Beholding it doesn't have to be so complicated. I think I'm learning more about that just from having a toddler. And as his eyes are opened Mm. to just learning new things about the world around him, I feel like I'm I'm learning it anew again (laughs) and recognizing things that I've missed and that those are things, you know, particularly like you mentioned in the nature around us that are all showing God's presence and beholding just everything of who he is. So that's really amazing.
1: Yeah. Amen. I think that's why Jesus exhorts us to have faith like a child. Mm. I think it's a matter of presence of just being present with God in the moment. That's what abiding means. And when we're present with God in the moment that leads to renewal.
0: Well, before we wrap up, is there anything else that you came across in your study of this passage this week that you didn't have time to include in your sermon and that you'd be willing to share with us now?
1: Yeah, it's interesting how 1 Samuel chapter 6, verse 19 is translated. And I noted this in the final point of my sermon yesterday. Uh, we use the NRSV translation at Oaks Parish. and verse 19, for example, reads, The descendants of Jeconiah did not rejoice with the people of Beth Shemesh when they greeted the ark of the Lord, and he killed 70 men of them. That sounds strange. <laughs> that that uh, that doesn't sound like the God of the Bible that we find in other passages. And um, you know, there there are rarely uh, I, I rarely come across, and there rarely exist uh, significant translation differences that would somehow cause you to have like a different view of God. But this is one of those places where the Hebrew just kind of gets wonky. And it can be translated different ways and translating committees uh, and publishers have to figure out uh, in, by way of methodology how to translate things. And, and this is one of those places where um, a group of people had to make some choices. And so even though we uh, often use the NRSV at Oaks Parish, that's a bad translation of verse 19. The NIV uh translates it uh, correctly. Um, In the NIV, it says, but God struck down some of the men of Beth Shemesh, putting 70 of them to death because they had looked into the ark of the Lord. God didn't just therefore randomly strike down 70 people. But as the NIV illuminates, it's because these guys were being foolish. They were curious. They opened up the lid of the ark. And they came into the raw presence of the Lord, and they died. And I unpacked that in the sermon yesterday. But as it pertains to translations, um, here's just kind of a, a a side note, a recommendation, if you will. When you're reading the Bible at home, and if you ever cr- come across something that that feels off, that feels kind of wonky, uh, that's when it's great to bring it to your discipleship group to consult some commentaries, perhaps. Uh, It's really easy, uh, especially um, on the internet to compare different translations. And so if something ever feels wonky, uh, just dig a little deeper and you might find something interesting as we find it here.
0: Yeah, I think that's a great plug too for our Q&A episode next week, because if there are other things that uh, you've come across either in first Samuel or in scripture in general, that you found kind of confusing or concerning, or you just want to know more. Uh, next week, we'd love to dig into those a little bit more. Um, so don't forget to submit your questions for our special Q&A episode. Uh, you can submit them at oaksperish.org podcast through the end of this week. And we'll be excited to handle those uh, next week. Those questions can be, again, about anything for Samuel, other things in scripture, or anything um, that you just have on your heart and you want uh, to know more about. Well, I think that's a wrap for this week. Happy Thanksgiving, everyone. And we'll look forward to another conversation next week.